Welcome to another edition of the Richard Haynes Real Estate Show. Today, we have a very special guest, Michelle DeMason, partner at Spear Woodward here, where she is a specialist in real estate litigation. We are going to go over some awesome topics for you to be aware of, non-disclosure disputes, new construction laws, and the Right to Repair Act. And we talk about trending topics in lease renegotiations and some subterranean disputes. It's a really great episode on how to protect yourself in the real estate game. Here we go. On today's podcast, we have a very special guest. Not only is she a wonderful client and friend, but she is also a litigation attorney whose practice focuses on a wide range of issues concerning real estate and business. Michelle's clients include developers, brokers, contractors, commercial and residential landlords and tenants, and purchasers and sellers of commercial and residential real estate. Among others, Michelle DeMason at Spira Woodward. Welcome to the show. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. Of course. And I forgot to mention, you're also a local South Bay resident here living with your family. Sure am. Thanks to you. I forgot. I'm now placing our USC <laughs> helmet <laughs> on the table. That, that's one part that we left out here. You're a Trojan, <laughs> like so many people around here, Northwestern Law graduate. We will keep this right here. Perfect. Because we're rooting on Caleb and Lincoln and all yeah. the Trojans for a championship run Absolutely. in 2023. <laughs> yes. All righty. Michelle, I'm going to jump right into it. Let's do it. You are the scary attorney. I can't the litigation. Be. I don't have to be. I think of myself, I call myself a problem solver. You are a problem solver. Because that's, that's what I do day in and day out. I, I help people solve problems. Well, you aren't scary, truly, but you are a litigation attorney, which a lot of people think is scary. But oftentimes you solve problems before you even get to the courtroom and things of that nature. Can you give us just a quick little summary of what your job entails to kind of the average residential real estate listener, and then we can get into some hard-hitting stuff. Sure. So the average issue that I see come up often with residential real estate is it's often a non-disclosure issue, right? Where somebody has bought a house, they discover that there was a big leak in a bathroom, and it happened when their sellers owned it, and sellers didn't tell them about it. And yes. so now they're like, oh my gosh, there was this big issue I didn't know about it. I'm having to spend a ton of money fixing it. This isn't right. They should have told me about this leak during escrow. So I often jump in after the close of escrow when the problem's been discovered. And the goal is not to go to court and spend a ton of money and take something to trial because it is so expensive and it takes forever. It can take years to take a case all the way to trial. And it's often not what the client wants. The client wants a solution. They need money to fix the problem. They need information so that they know what the true scope of the problem is. And that's where I come in. And so we often have a meeting with the other side. And the goal of the meeting is to try to resolve the problem. If that doesn't work, we should have a mediation where there's a third party who comes in and helps the parties talk to each other. And oftentimes that is the end of the road where there is a 
solution that isn't perfect. Everybody's not thrilled with it, but it is so much better than taking something all the way to trial. Agreed. And I've heard some of those costs just when making decisions for our own business or helping other clients. You want to settle even if it doesn't feel good most of the time. Most of the time, depending on the client, finances, emotions, history, all kinds of things. But nine times out of 10, settling makes the most sense. Got it. Very, very interesting. I want to get in a little bit more of non-disclosure. Sure. Because disclosure is such a big deal when we're doing transactions with our clients, yep. buying a home or selling a home. I encourage all of my sellers, hey, guys, think about everything that's ever happened that someone may want to know. And we really push people to disclose because it protects them yes. from having to get into potential litigation or disputes after the fact. And then with buyers, we're like, hey, they've got to disclose something. We're going to do our investigations. But sometimes we got to know what's going on from the sellers. Can you talk to us a little bit more on how you would recommend sellers to disclose things and then buyers of course when you think they might actually have a dispute or what they should look for so let's start with the sellers first the sellers i find of course never want to disclose anything because they're worried that if they disclose something quote unquote bad about the home that they're trying to sell that they're going to lose money and they're not going to get the right offer but it's really the opposite that happens you should disclose everything material that happened with your property, even an issue that you fixed or that you think you fixed, because how terrible to sell the property, think that you're done, and then get a demand letter a year and a half later from your buyer asking you for money and threatening to sue you yes. because they found something out that you knew about but didn't disclose. So over-disclose. Disclose. If you have to ask the question of whether something should disclose, disclose it. Right. The phrase we often use is, let's say they're, again, that leak in the bathroom example. Uh, leak in master bathroom two years ago, hired licensed plumber to repair, no issues since the date of repair, buyer to investigate. Love that. I wish I could have every one of my sellers <laughs> state things like that. And what's interesting is, is sometimes people don't even remember but forget to disclose it. And then if something's discovered later. Yep. They're kind of in trouble for it, and, and that's very rare. But, you know, what I say I do is with my house, I have a file, mm -hmm. and it's broken down by year, and it has every single capital improvement or repair we've done, one for tax purposes, sure. if we ever resell, so I can look at my cost basis. But also, I will go back there, and in seven years, 10 years, I'll literally disclose every single year, say what happened, even issue receipts and sure. who the company is, just to be like, I've given you everything. Now, that's way over-disclosing. You and I are probably one of the few people that would do that for our homes. You saw my disclosures. I yeah. saw your disclosures. They were amazing. <laughs> and we all sleep well at night with your disclosures. So that's great insight for our sellers. Now, let's talk about buyers because buyers, it's less of a disclosure thing. That's on me to help them to investigate. Yep. But typically, when buyers get burned, whether intentionally or unintentionally by the sellers, what are things that you see? What are things that buyers should do when they find out something? And give us an example of what you've seen or how you've helped people. I think there's a couple things to watch out for. One is if your buyers are buying a home that somebody has owned for 20 or 30 years. 
just unintentionally, people have a hard time remembering something they did on the home five years ago, let alone 10 years ago. But sometimes that thing that they did 10 years ago matters. And so if you have somebody who's on the home for a long time, it really helps to ask specific questions, to have the buyer's agent ask the seller's agent, can you like follow up about XYZ with them or do more inspections, uh, hire specific trades like foundation people, plumbers, roofers, above and beyond what you might do with a seller that owns the home or a newer home, things like that. I think just knowing that you're dealing with somebody that's owned the home for a long time they may have a different perspective on what's material than you as a buyer stepping into the home for the first time. That's number one. Number two, for any buyer, if you have specific concerns, voice them because that might flag the issue to your sellers to make them think harder about your particular concern. And then you've flagged it for the sellers. This thing is material to me. I really need to know everything about this particular issue. And third, do whatever inspections you want. Don't feel limited just by the home inspector. Home inspectors try to find things. They sometimes do. They often don't. If you're worried about mold, get a mold guy in. What's the worst thing that happens? You get a negative mold report. Fantastic. If you're sensitive to mold, do a mold report. If you're sensitive to other things, get that inspector in there. Use your investigation contingency to do all of your due diligence. Excellent advice. I agree with everything. I want to ask you a follow-up question to this because a lot of buyers ask this question of me, and I've learned the answer from you and the attorneys at your office. Sure. But I think it's good to put out there in the in the world, if they haven't worked here with us or with you before, is there are buyers who ask and go, look, disclosure was very light from a seller, and we discovered that they put this addition in unpermitted five years ago, and they didn't disclose it. Do buyers have any rights then and there and to go, yes, to go after them? Or if they discovered it, decide to close and then go, this is a bigger can of worms, but we did discover it ourselves. They didn't disclose it. Do we have rights against them off that? No, because in your, a few reasons, one of the reasons is the language in that car form residential purchase agreement. And it basically says, like, if you discover something during escrow that you don't like, you can ask the seller to do something about it, like take a haircut off the purchase price or fix it. But the seller doesn't have an obligation to do so. Your only option once you are in escrow is to close or cancel. Your protection is the ability to cancel. There are some hairy situations that can come in if you're dealing with like commercial property and 1031 exchanges where you might have a better argument depending on the contract, but residential, you get to close or cancel. I love it. And that's something that people go, oh, well, they didn't disclose it to us, but we discovered it. Let's close and buy it. And then we'll have recourse after we buy it. The point is, if you discover it, even if it wasn't disclosed. Yep. Once you discover it before close, if you decide to buy it, you're taking full responsibility for that discovery. That's right. You're on notice and you are choosing to close. So purely, it is more after you close if you discover something after the fact. Yes. That should have been disclosed or the seller should have known, et cetera, et cetera. That's then where you come in. That's right. Okay. Before I move on to my next topic, which I really want to talk about new construction, which you know I was talking to you about earlier, 
I think what's so fascinating about your business, or at least litigation, and not your business, about the business strategy that a buyer or seller when they hire you is, they may discover something that should have been disclosed that costs them $100,000 to repair. But oftentimes, you're not always going to get that full $100,000 back. Can you explain the decision making and bit because I tell people all the time I go well if your attorney's costs are this and the time is this there's a fine balance of you're probably never going to be made whole and I hate saying that because we want the system to be just but can you talk a little bit about that strategy of when you're working with clients and I know maybe it's hard without a specific example but I'll no, let it you happens kinda... every day all the time it's a financial and emotional decision where you are faced with a problem that is absolutely going to cost you money to fix it, but it's also going to cost you money to assert your rights that sort of come out of this problem. And so the question is, okay, what can I afford to spend to go after this problem? If this problem is going to cost me $10,000, that's a very different problem than a $100,000 problem. $10,000, maybe it makes sense to come in with me for like an hour-long consultation versus the $100,000, it may make sense to do that and then hire me for a much longer negotiation to engage in with the seller. If you have all of the money in the world and something that the seller did is infuriating and you find that it's not right and you're taking it personally and you have the time and energy to spend to go after the seller... Great. But that all comes into play in deciding what you want to do with this problem you are facing. It often makes sense to engage in a dialogue with the other side and to raise this issue and to sort of take it to a certain point. But where that point is, is financial, emotional, completely unique to the person. I love it. And I think people will understand that more if they ever have to call you on something. <laughs> yeah. Because I've had clients that we send to you, mm -hmm. and it's over a five or $10,000 dispute. And sometimes you create that dialogue and the seller goes, you know what, I did screw up and they're really good people. And they go, you, you deserve the five or 10 grand. I'm sorry, here's the money. Where other people understand the game going, attorney's fees are going to cost everyone some money why don't we split it down the middle or else you have to come get me? And then there's other ones where it's a massive expense and it it's worth the ROI sometimes of spending a lot in attorney's fees or pushing it through. And it's really on a case-by-case -case basis. And you're advising them not only on the law and the leverage they have potentially in their case, but you're almost crunching numbers for them. Yeah. I feel like as like a mathematician going, is it worth the ROI? You're, you're presenting the business case for them, and then they're deciding whether to move forward further with you or not. Yeah, I think it's a really important part of their decision-making. I have to give them all of the information and actually explain what the decision is, because the decision often isn't, did they do something wrong? That's way easier than, like, what do I do about it? And so the what do I do about it, the cost and expense of going after the other side always comes into play. And sometimes just coming in to see me and spending an hour with me to actually understand like the, what their real estate agent told them is true or not true. And then to understand what their options are, it can give them some peace in their decision if they decide not to move forward, because then they actually feel like they've been heard in coming to see me and explain what the problem is. And they actually understand then 
what to do about it. Yes. Uh, the key is call you, spend an hour, get into the details, and you can normally give someone a good idea on whether they should be proceeding after something or maybe taking a step back depending on numbers and, and the case and everything. So that's good. Basically, call Michelle DeMason <laughs> and just get started. So I want to switch gears now to okay. a topic that is a big deal in the South Bay, more so high-end luxury homes in Manhattan Beach. Okay. There's a lot of new construction happening there. There's new construction happening in North Redondo with townhomes, same in South Redondo. And then you get Quite a few new builds in Hermosa Beach, and I, I feel like the Palos Verdes Peninsula is starting to see newer and newer builds come mm -hmm. up. I want to talk about new construction because it really is a big deal or is starting to become a big deal. If you can shed light on, to buyers, because most of the time sellers, they're developers and they know what they're doing, but buyers, let's talk about new construction SB800 mm -hmm. and some of their rights, some of their risks. We can talk about what they should do up front, maybe in escrow, and then what their rights are maybe in SB 800. And I don't know, do we talk, is it patent and latent defects? Am I saying that right? You're saying it right. Patent? You can talk about that. Uh, I'm always like, I don't know which one's which, but one's four <laughs> years, one's 10 years, but that's why we have you to pick up the phone. So wherever you want to get into with new construction, I'll let you have the floor. Let's first define what new construction is. Please. Because a lot of what you see in the South Bay actually isn't new construction. It's functionally, but not exactly new construction. Okay. If you take a house down to the studs, but you leave up a couple posts, Amazing that's point. often just a substantial remodel. It's a remodel. It's not new, new construction. Constru Thank you for clarifying that. Yes. So new construction, you've raced the building, you've got brand new everything from the ground up. Yes. So that's new construction. So new construction is governed by um, a different additional set of rules called SB 800 or the Right to Repair Act. The purpose of this act, it's to explain the types of standards for aspects of new construction, like waterproofing, structure, noise transmission, roof, things like that. And it's also designed to help divert some disputes over new construction from the court system. So it has this whole statutory scheme of how can we try to resolve these problems over new construction without everybody running to court. And yes. that involves trying to get the problems repaired versus just exchanging money in a lawsuit. Got it. So it's warranties and guarantees on different parts of the home. That, that's all that's basically offered or is am i taking that out of that's you not correct it, you fully. can view it as a warranty the statute says things like your decks should be waterproofed got your it. structure and foundation should be good for x number of years things like that got it well and then let's talk about that is that patent and latent depending <laughs> on how many years or am i taking us too far down a rabbit hole it, not totally uh, rabbit hole but a, a defect is a defect mm -hmm. a patent defect is one that you can just walk in and see if okay you come in and you see that your wall is leaning at a 90 degree angle okay that's a patent defect okay a latent defect might be that your foundation isn't properly waterproofed and it takes a year for that that issue to become apparent because your floors start buckling and you're like, what's happening? That would be an example of a latent defect, something that's hidden and that you don't see until a problem comes up. Got it. And those latent, the ones that you don't see, 
Is that what's the typical timeline that you're protected under SB 800 if you happen to know the statute? Is it is it 10? I hear 10 years is is a number. If things stay hidden, Mm -hmm. once things become apparent, you have a time period to act. Got it. But generally speaking, you are protected under SB 800 for 10 years with some exceptions. But that is the entire like after 10 years. You can't bring a claim for new construction. Got it. So 10-year-old home, done. And let me ask you this question. Let's say someone buys a new construction home, sells it five years later to a new buyer. Does that new buyer in year five get coverage under SB 800 for those remaining five years of latent defects? Yes. They do. Okay. Good to know. What are some of the things that you see with new construction when clients come to you with a dispute with a developer or someone who built a custom home? Can you give us some examples or at least some stuff to help kind of people understand? Sure. I think that sometimes it's a problem of expectations. People buy a new home and expect it to be perfect and everything to be functional, and that's why they buy a new home, right? Mm -hmm. New homes have issues, too. Everybody tries their best to create a beautiful, new, perfect home, but issues do come up. So my first piece of advice is if you buy a new home, expect there to be issues because there often are. Once an issue comes up, there's then a process. Most homeowners, the first thing that comes up is that they reach out to the builder, right? Because that's, that's who you know, that's who you often buy the home from. And so I usually get involved when that initial process maybe doesn't go so smoothly. The Right to Repair Act says that there's some formal ways to put the builder on notice that there's a problem. The builder then has an opportunity to come in and inspect within a certain amount of time. And after that, the builder, if it chooses to basically accept that there's a problem, identify the fix, explain the fix, and you as a buyer have a right to request a bid from people that are not the builder developer. You can request three other bids. So that's something that's really helpful for buyers. If you feel like your builder developer is not holding up his end of the bargain and you don't believe that they're going to do the job to fix it, mm-hmm. the statute says you can ask for a bid from three other people. Got it. And then can you proceed with those three other bids or are there some there's probably some procedures that you have to go through before you make those repairs there's some additional procedures you have to go through to make those repairs. okay but the builder is the one obtaining those three repairs and presenting those three to you Ah, for you to consider got it understood okay if you were to share anything else on new construction in sb 800 because you know this so much more intimately i just know the surface and was you know asking if you is there anything else buyers should know about the Right to Repair Act when they're buying a home? How can they protect themselves, as we talked about in escrow, with disclosure and investigation? Is there anything you recommend? Should they be calling you when they're negotiating a contract to make sure you have these statutes in the purchase contract? Or does that apply only in the law? Or do you guys set up other things ahead of time? Or is this something where You just got to see how the home rolls and then they call you. You know what I mean? Typically, I see the Right to Repair Act language like attached to the purchase contract. There is a specific purchase contract for new construction. There is. The statute applies, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think buyers just need to have the right expectation going in. If the home is finished, do your own inspection. Yes, much easier. Yes, make sure you have that punch list identified. 
And if your efforts to communicate with the developer aren't going well, that's when you call me. But first step is to contact the developer to see if they'll fix it. Got it. They can do it. And then every situation, I think, from there is probably very, very different. unique and very unique <laughs> every case because yes. it's something leaking or something breaking or cracking and it's specific. So we don't have to go down into those details I don't think we should get into what if you buy a home that's in framing or go to escrow because that is a whole nother can of worms where I will call your guys's office and be like, how do we protect our buyers as we're choosing finishes and making sure that the general contractor performs? We're not going to get into that today. Just call you. But I'm going to I'm going to put a bow on this new construction. What about clients who end up buying a lot or a teardown? Mm -hmm. Do some of these things apply with their general contractor, and I know the simple answer is yes, SB 800 will be if you're the, the homeowner hiring a contractor to build a home, but do you see issues arriving when people build their own custom homes, or is that rarer, so to speak, than when you're just buying something new from a spec developer? Oh, it's a whole host of other and different... All new and different. Problems, all kinds of problems. Sometimes it's, oh my gosh... It's issues with the contractor mm -hmm. because, as you know, there are contractors that are excellent. Yes. And there are contractors that are not excellent. Yes. And so it completely depends on who you hire. Uh -huh. It may depend on the quality of your project manager. If there is a project manager involved to make sure that the subs are doing things on time and yes. that they're at your house when they say they're going to be at their house. Uh, issues can come up with getting lien releases mm -hmm. from people that are doing the work. I mean, building a home is wonderful and fantastic because you can get exactly what you want, mm -hmm. but there are so many pitfalls yes. uh, that you should be aware of to make sure that the project doesn't fall off the deep end and two years later you're left with a shell. Yes. And your money gone. I I'm with you because it can be a bad contractor who runs off with the money or doesn't perform. I guess that's maybe a whole new topic, and I'm sure a lot of disputes you have are between someone building their own home and having a dispute with the GC. I certainly see it. I see disputes with GC and subs once the subs run off. Yes. I see issues with homeowners and neighbors mm -hmm. because they're not happy with the construction going on next door, or it brings up an issue. Oh, I find out that uh, this wall is on my property three feet. What yes. do I do about this? And the neighbor doesn't want to move the wall, and it's a whole... Gosh, the amount, the amount of disputes that can arise in real estate on anything, not even just new construction, are, are vast, which I just go, why don't, I mean, I've, we've talked about new construction and disclosure. Is there something that's trending right now that you're getting more calls on than you used to, or that you go, no, this is, and I know you do it all for the basically real estate litigation focus. Is there something now that you're seeing coming up? that our listeners should be aware of. Whether they're a home buyer or seller, it could be a contractor, it could be a commercial broker, anything. What are you seeing now that might be interesting to share? It's a great question. Uh, I would say that the constant is non-disclosure disputes between buyers and sellers of constant. real estate. Okay. Um, we have had quite a few uh, clients come in wanting to do like lease renegotiations. Leases are coming up mm -hmm. now with um, the current market for commercial properties. Yes. Uh, that's happening quite a bit with um, real estate, residential. There was a time when I got multiple disputes coming in 
people that were doing work on their homes mm -hmm. going subterranean, and it was causing issues with properties next door. Next door. Oh, yeah. my goodness. There was a time where I had that happen on multiple different clients having that same dispute, sometimes representing the people doing the digging, sometimes mm -hmm. representing the people next door. That seems to have calmed down, but that was a trend a couple of years ago. It, it was that, and and this is South Bay specific, was that more of a beach issue or a Palos Verdes issue? Because I'm thinking like sand section yes. and you've got shaking and you've got the shoring right next door, very close and sand liquefaction if it's not compacted properly. Was that more of a beach issue or do you still see that in Palos Verdes in certain areas with the expansive soils or fill areas? What, what, where were you seeing some of those I'm sure subterranean can, disputes? I'm sure it can happen anywhere. I was seeing it in the in the beach. In the beach cities, in sand section. So was it not as much so as the trees or East Manhattan Beach? It was, was it really focused sand, would you say? I don't remember. Okay. I would, the only reason why I ask is because it's good knowledge for people buying going, hey, if I'm buying a sand section, I got to be really careful when we go subterranean versus- You should it, be really careful when all you go the subterranean time. everywhere. <laughs> of course. The sand is just such a unique place. Yes. You know, of how close everything is and, and you're built on sand dunes, yes. essentially. Yeah. So that's interesting. Well, let's talk a little bit about lease renegotiations. I know it's commercial, but we have a lot of people that we work with who- have businesses they run, whether they're their own commercial real estate businesses or they're in produce or they're in athletics or they're in nutrition and they're renting office space or retail or whatnot. What are some of the lease renegotiatings happening? Is that the office space now, the, the pandemic, where people are trying to renegotiate before the expiration of a lease? What are you seeing, if you can be a little bit more specific on whatever you can share? Well, I come in when there's uh, an issue, right? So I come in when there's a dispute and maybe the lease renegotiation isn't going well. I had a client who was moving into a larger space in the same shopping center and the landlord wasn't willing to play ball with some of the issues that were coming up with permitting and the city. Got it. And it, it caused a whole major issue and the parties couldn't resolve it. And so we ended up in litigation, which is really unfortunate. And we obviously try to avoid whenever possible because it's a big business expense. It's huge because I'm going, let's say you're a homeowner and you discover a $50,000 foundation issue. Mm -hmm. It's You're really focused on the $50,000 repair, where in that case, a business is expanding. Not only is it you've got to fix this and pay and do it, yeah. but are there damages of going... Here's how much more money we were projecting to make. And I know you probably can't project and earn damages, but if you're going, I'm going from 5,000 square feet of retail space to 20 and you're ramping up and hiring, do those issues become even bigger because it's it's delayed a business? How does that work just from a 8,000 foot angle? Lost profits yeah. are available in a breach of contract case or in other cases if you are not a new business and you basically can show a financial track record so that it's not speculative and mm -hmm. not just like making something up based on projections that are not your specific business. Like if you're Starbucks and yeah. a landlord delays you a year and you go, we have a thousand Starbucks that we can show we make 
$2 million a year on. You're in you, much better shape you're in than better shape. mom and pop who just were trying to open but could never open and are trying to establish what their lost profits might have been. Interesting. And I'm sure it all depends on the lease as well. Sure does. Draw up yeah. and the LOI <laughs> and why your business is so hard to just give an example and why people just need to call you. Okay, good. I love it. I want to get on one more business topic, but I want to get you know, a little bit more personal into Michelle. Tell us a little bit about your background on from every you from whatever you want, from what you studied in school or where you're from, now that you live in the South Bay, what you love about it. We'll lighten that up a little bit. Okay. Uh, give us some of that so they know you as, as a human being, and then we'll wrap up kind of with one last business topic. Great. I went to USC undergrad. After that, I went to Northwestern Law School, had some love fun it. in Chicago for three years. I practiced in New York for five years. That's why my husband and on our third date, I told him that we would be moving back to California eventually. And he was welcome to continue dating me if that was okay. (laughs) You go, look, this is a (laughs) non-negotiable if we're going to keep dating. You must have really liked him to tell him that far up in front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We knew pretty quickly. We stayed in New York another year and then we moved back here in 2015. Um, when I started working for Spear Woodward. Amazing. And I was in South Torrance, and thanks to you, we found a beautiful home in Lanata Bay. And having you and Pete. I am obsessed with Lanata Bay. I love it so much. It's been really, really great for our family. That's amazing. Lanata Bay is one of those special areas in all the South Bay, and that's not sh- shortchanging all the amazing areas, but there is something about Lanata Bay, especially in the summertime. Mm-hmm. July to September is like... A dream it's in Lanata Bay. It's amazing year round, but I'm like, I don't think there's a better spot in the South Bay than Lanata Bay in the summer outside of actually just being on the beach or living on the beach. Yep. Lanata Bay has got everything. So, well, yay. And hopefully you're going to be here for a long time because we want you here and we're going to, you know. All of our clients are going to need you probably at some point down the road. So don't leave us. <laughs> I told you when I bought our house that we were never moving. Uh, good. I mean that sincerely. Well, and what's what's interesting is, is you're like in your business, a lot of this is so emotional. Mm-hmm. And when it's your own home or your own business, there's emotions involved where if you're like me as a broker, I'm the, the non-emotional because it's not my house. Yeah. And you're the litigation attorney. It's not my business, whatever, to keep people on track. And it's fascinating because we both bought our homes at similar times. Mm -hmm. And the emotional aspect of being in the client's shoes is... Yeah. It's hard. It's uh, very eye-opening. It's so hard. (laughs) And it helps actually ground us, which is great, of like, okay, what are our clients going through? Which is valuable. And then both you and I are like, I don't want to do that again. Like, let's stay here for a really, really long time. So (laughs) I love it. Well, great. What else, before we sign off here, what else do you think our listeners should know about you or some helpful tips when you're going out? Because I know you'll speak to people or people have you come into their offices, whatnot. Can you leave us with some helpful things for anyone, commercial to residential, to keep people out of trouble? And then if there is trouble, what are their first steps with you? My piece of advice and something I've learned with clients over the years is I I respect and understand that hiring a lawyer is like really scary. It's not everybody's first thought. You hear the word lawyer and it's, oh, I don't, I don't need that. I don't want to go there. And that, 
mentality can often make the problems so much bigger because they don't come in and get the right information and advice early on when the problem is this big and solvable. So then it becomes this big. Yes. So my advice is to come in and just spend an hour with me. A lot of times early on, that's all you'll need. And you'll have a much better idea of what your options are so that you can make the right decision so that down the road six months later, you're not kicking yourself like, oh, I should have come in and figured out this problem sooner. And now two of those options that I had on the table are gone and I'm left with these two options, which I hate a lot more. I agree with you 100%. I can say from experience, the clients who pay for an hour of your time and there's one other person, Mm -hmm. a structural civil engineers time inspection, (laughs) When we have clients that hire you Mm -hmm. or the engineer, I feel like a warm blanket has just come over us in a transaction because you guys know all the legal pitfalls and the engineer knows everything about structure and drainage. When you guys are expensive, but you're worth every penny and it's not expensive because you guys end up being the most affordable insurance policy of all time. So I'm with you of going, I would love it if everyone hired you when we opened escrow. (laughs) Just for an hour or two to go over everything with you and then hire an engineer. That obviously is not the reality, but I think that's the best advice. And I can say from experience, the clients that walk out of your office or anyone in Spira Woodward or again with an engineer, they all feel so confident about buying or selling their home or the business. I love to hear that. I am not frothing at the mouth to get into a fight. That is really not what a good litigation attorney is. My goal is to give you the right information, identify all of your options so that we can figure out how to solve whatever this problem is. I love it. I think it's amazing. You nailed it. Michelle, before I let you go, because I know you're very busy and got to get back at it, where can our listeners find your contact information if they want to talk to you about something here in the future so they can look you up? Our website is www.practicallawyer.com. Uh, You can find information about our firm and all of the lawyers uh, there. My email is michelle.demason at practicallawyer.com. And our phone number at the office is 310-540-3199. And just ask for Michelle. And just ask for me. I love it. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for spending time with us on the podcast. We loved every minute of it. We're going to have you back. I have to come back. This was really fun. Thank you for having me. All right. We'll see you guys next time on the Richard Haynes Real Estate Show.